welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Go over to Counterpunch, get your subscription to Counterpunch Plus, and do it now. That's how you support Counterpunch. You know you love it. You know you've loved Counterpunch for years, and you know you've always wanted to support your favorite independent media outlets. You just haven't had that push. Well, I am pushing you. Go do it. I'm being pushy about it. Go do it. But also, uh, in all seriousness, I think Counterpunch is one of the real uh, uh, last spaces that we have on the left where you get many different perspectives, all of which of various flavors of, of the left, and allows a platform for debate, for discussion, for critical analysis, all of these things. So Counterpunch, I think, is unique in that regard. Go over to the website, counterpunch.org, get a subscription, buy a copy of the Counterpunch Plus Journal. That is the best. The collected writings from uh, 2021, the best that Counterpunch had in the subscriber section, it'll give you a little taste and you can see for yourself just how great the content is. So speaking of great content and great contributions that Counterpunch gets regularly, I have one of those people with me today. It's Jeff Summers. Jeffrey's written a really important piece a couple of weeks ago. You know, it's interesting because we... We had scheduled a, a conversation to talk about uh, the death of a very important global figure, and now that's overshadowed by the death of the Queen, who I would say is marginally important and yet extremely uh, important to discuss and, you know, deride. But anyway, we're going to talk about Gorbachev. Here's Jeff Summers. Jeff is the um, he's a political economist. He's a contributor to Counterpunch. His uh, most recent book, The Contradictions of Austerity, The Socioeconomic Costs of the Neoliberal Baltic Model. He is at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and he is a friend of Counterpunch. Hi, Jeff. Eric, great to be here. And while in Wisconsin, we're uh, known to be Wisconsin Midwestern nice I as well will actually be a little pushy and uh, counsel your viewers to subscribe to Counterpunch. What, what a wonderful resource. Agreed. It's been, it's been, well, it's been central in my own political development now for almost tw for 20 years, actually. So yes, Counterpunch means a lot to me. It means a lot to a lot of us. So anyway, all right, Jeff, you're here to talk about Gorbachev and the death of Gorbachev. You had a great piece in Counterpunch earlier this month. Uh, actually, it was technically the last day of August, August 31st, but let's just call it the beginning of September, how Mikhail Gorbachev became the most reviled man in Russia. So there's a lot to unpack in that title, but let's just ask the most broad question. How did he become the most reviled man in Russia, Jeff? Well, of course, for the, for the reasons that I think most of us all know, which is uh, the absolute collapse that we saw in Russia in the 1990s following his rule. Uh, so, you know, we, we are familiar with the uh, social and the economic indicators from that period, just a, an absolute uh, travesty. Uh, I spent a good bit of time on the ground in the former Soviet Republic of Latvia in the 1990s, and it was just an unmitigated disaster. Uh, in fact, when uh, I visited on a trip in 1995, I had my, my new spouse in tow, who was a Latvian American, and uh, we went to visit one of her elderly aunts, and we actually found her under a bridge selling her belongings, along with dozens of other pensioners. This was not an uncommon sight throughout the former uh, Soviet uh, Union in the 1990s. Just, just absolutely terrible. But of course, uh, the, the unraveling began uh, long before the Soviet Union had died. Uh, so the, the 1980s, of course, uh, represented a, a protracted period of crisis, which absolutely had to be addressed. And it's not as if uh, Gorbachev uh, had a non-problem to deal with. Absolutely. And, you know, I lived in Russia briefly in 1993 and 1994 when I was still 10 years old and my father was working there at the time. And I have vivid memories of what Russia, what Moscow was like in 1993, 1994, which was the beginning of the uh, the real inundation of the gangsters, the mafia groups, the various uh, uh, violent criminal elements that began to well, ultimately wage war on the streets of uh, Russia and the former Soviet republics all throughout that period. And I remember, just as you say, I remember walking through the park with my mom holding my hand and seeing a man selling his personal library. And I mean, this wasn't, you know, I mean, these weren't like pulp 
books or something. I mean, these were like scientific textbooks, engineering books, books on history, uh, you know, social sciences. I mean, I remember thinking I was like, wow, why is this guy selling all of his, you know, all of these belongings? And only obviously in retrospect, understanding that he had been pushed to the most, you know, to the brink of desperation for somebody who was, you know, highly educated engineer and, you know, et cetera. He had been pushed to sell his books and that was what he had to feed his family. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just the working class, which was tragic enough that they were destroyed by the uh, unwinding of the Soviet Union. But as you say as well, it was the it was the middle class. Uh, And and then again, all of these uh, pensioners, many of whom had to sell off their apartments on the cheap and just whatever equity they had built up, uh, it was all liquidated. And it was all you know, fairly by the 1990s, consciously done. I mean, they they knew that uh, they wanted to start from afresh, and so they destroyed the currency, which meant destroying everyone's savings. So uh, it, it it was a wreck. It was a wreck. Now, but, talk talk to me a little. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, John. you go ahead, please. No, talk to me a little bit about Gorbachev, uh, especially our younger viewers and listeners may not have all of the background on who he was. Not maybe they know that he was a leader of the Soviet Union, but who is this guy? Where does he come from? What what shapes his thinking and his thought? And then especially if you could explain how he really was different from the other leaders who had come before him. Yeah, as I uh, detail in my article, uh, you know, I describe him as a, a, a democratic socialist in terms of his inclinations. Uh, so, you know, we have this uh, vast literature uh, that is anchored in the thinking of people like conservatives such as uh, Frederick von Hayek, you know, who wrote his famous book uh, on the road to serfdom, which essentially uh, argued that if you pursued socialism, it would ultimately take you uh, to the end point, destination of uh, serfdom or slavery, and that the the model itself uh, predetermined this outcome. With Mikhail Gorbachev, we see that uh, you know that argument doesn't hold. Uh, so you know we have a figure uh, who is from the provinces, kind of like Lenin, I guess, in that sense. He was a provincial uh, intellectual of sorts, although Lenin had more of a privileged background, whereas. Gorbachev uh, had a background which is anchored really in the rural, uh, uh, um, you know, a peasantry uh, to some extent. Um, he grew up about uh, you know 120 kilometers or so, just uh, southeast of what is modern day Ukraine, and he, in large part, was even raised by his maternal grandparents, who were uh, ethnic Ukrainian, and he uh, through some combination of merit and good luck is able to uh, climb the ladder of social mobility at a time when the Soviet Union was experiencing uh, some significant degree of economic uh, growth in the uh, 1950s, uh, is able to attend Moscow State University, which is the country's premier institution of higher learning. And through uh, diligence, uh, hard work, a reputation for actually getting things done, uh, uh, eventually scales that ladder all the way to the top post in the entire Soviet Union, that being the general secretary of the, uh, of the Soviet Union. Now, that said, he is also really the first and the last of a, a generation of leaders in the Soviet Union that had no connection to Joseph Stalin, either personally or through the uh, cadre of um, successors that uh, uh, he created. So he, um, he was really detached from that. And he was very much influenced uh, by the writings of Vladimir Lenin. And as I argue in my article, I mean, of course, there are uh, at least two dimensions to uh, Vladimir Ilyich. You know, we have a, uh, a figure who is both very focused on concepts of democracy, worker empowerment, uh, et cetera, uh, but also a a figure who could be ruthlessly brutal in terms of realizing this uh, revolution that he wanted to bring about. And the the, the side of Lenin's personality that Gorbachev uh, latches onto is that one which is committed to, uh, to democracy. And Gorbachev thinks that the way 
to cure the ills, the dysfunctionality of the Soviet economy by the 1980s is to simply democratize it. And he always turns to the writings of Lenin when he encounters a problem and thinks that he can find the solutions in that 43-volume set of uh, Lenin's writings that uh, all leading figures in the uh, Soviet bureaucracy would have had. Most of them would never have opened one of them, uh, but nonetheless, they <laughs> all had them. Uh, but in, in Gorbachev, we actually had a guy who read them. And that is the uh, tragedy, the, as I say, the really Greek tragedy proportions of a figure like Gorbachev, inclined towards uh, democracy, but unleashes all of the worst uh, tendencies that were already existing within the Soviet Union or latent and, un, and just looking to be uncapped and let loose. You know, to that point about uh, Gorbachev's thinking and philosophical outlook, etc., um, I'm reminded of the late Stephen Cohen, you know, who famously, I mean, he traveled to the Soviet Union many times, of course, and, you know, he personally knew Gorbachev, etc., but And lived there quite, yeah. and quite frequently as well. He had an apartment yeah. in Moscow. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I'm, I'm reminded of Stephen Cohen's book on Bukharin when oh, that yes. came out and the impact that it had. And I heard a story, whether it's true or somewhat apocryphal, I don't know. Supposedly it's true that Cohen's book was extremely influential on Gorbachev in the 70s when it came out and that Gorbachev had seen in Cohen's book and in the excavation of Bukharin's thought, which had been suppressed for decades, that he had sort of found some kind of a formula that might bring some kind of the positive changes that he, uh, I guess, envisioned were necessary for the Soviet Union. So can you speak a little bit on his thinking and theoretical ideas and maybe where that comes from and ultimately how it went wrong? Right. So, you know, a, a great point, and you're absolutely correct, that uh, Gorbachev was uh, purportedly influenced by Cohen's uh, work on Bukharin. Bukharin, uh, you know, in the 1920s, was considered uh, to be on the right within the Bolshevik uh, uh, party and um, a not so much an architect of, but rather a, a, an advocate of the new economic policy, uh, which was a uh, structure for the economy that would bring the wrecked uh, Soviet economy back from the destruction wrought in the Civil War from 1918 to 1921 by using uh, uh, some degree of market mechanisms and trying to unleash some of the dynamic uh, entrepreneurial uh, potential of the uh, of the Russian uh, people. Now, this doesn't mean you know a, a kind of neoliberal privatizing uh, uh, effort. But it, 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 it did want to turn away from an overly bureaucratized and arguably necessary during the uh, context of a civil war, war communist, fully planned economy, uh, to one which uh, relaxed some controls. And so we saw in the 1980s that uh, Gorbachev uh, begins to draw upon that equity of ideas that was resident in figures like uh, Bukharin and Preobrazhinsky and, and others from the 1920s uh, who thought that that was the uh, direction to, to uh, uh, take the economy. Now, this wasn't just, of course, uh, Gorbachev that was thinking in these terms. It was also uh, Gorbachev's um, uh, mentor of sorts. And of course, I'm referring to Andropov, uh, who was the former KGB leader and then later general secretary of the uh, Soviet Communist uh, Party himself, who secedes uh, um, uh, uh, Leonid Brezhnev and you know, recognizes that you know, Brezhnev had in the 1960s and 1970s uh, just left all sorts of areas of the uh, Soviet economy neglected uh, that there were problems in terms of transportation, uh, you know, um, rail networks that, while vast, uh, were in you know, sore need of repair, uh, really, really bad roads. Uh, so just a, a very basic uh, uh, understanding of a need to repair the country's infrastructure. 
and to uh, you know just shake up the, uh, the 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 bureaucracy a bit. Now, uh, you know, going back to well, uh, why did we have this uh, period of um, some stagnation or lack of dynamism? Yet one which is remembered quite fondly by many of the elderly in uh, the former Soviet Union, that being the Brezhnev period. Uh, well, you know, one of the things that happened during Brezhnev's uh, rule was that one, uh, Brezhnev recognized that you really wanted to uh, just kind of take care of the bureaucracy, uh, you know, that that would make them happy and therefore that would keep your power intact. So, you know, that meant that there were not going to be um, as many um, positive pressures that are needed to affect change, but also uh, the discovery of the vast uh, oil and gas fields in uh, Western uh, Siberia. And that provided a, a huge store of wealth that the Soviet Union could draw upon to uh, cover its trade imbalances and also to build up its military and uh, provide some degree of uh, consumer goods while um, uh, failing to focus on innovation in their own country. And then, you know, lastly, you know, it should be remembered that the experience of World War II, it, it, is just so deeply ingrained and burnt into the psyche of uh, the the, you know, the Russians. Uh, so you know they 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 really reconstructed their entire economy, uh, both in the 1930s, anticipating World War II to some extent, but certainly following World War II to survive World War III. The assumption within the Soviet Union was that there was World War I, there was World War II, and that the Germans would be back likely in another generation. So you build an economy to survive World War III. Well, how do you do that? Uh, one of the chief assets you have is a dozen time zones. <laughs> so, you, you know, you, you spread things out over this vast expanse of territory that the Soviet Union uh, comprised so that if you were ever attacked, you know, enough of your industry would survive and uh, you would be able to uh, take the initial hit and then eventually a counterattack. Well, that model, while arguably good if you're preparing for World War uh, III, uh, was a bit of a disaster if you were trying to construct an efficient economy. In other words, you were building in inefficiencies on the score of transportation in order to uh, have some greater degree of survivability. Well, Gorbachev inherits all of this. And Dropoff, as we know, uh, was ill and old uh, when he assumed uh, power. And so he, he didn't have enough time to implement the reforms that he wanted to uh, uh, put in place. And of course, he was followed by this Cherganko fellow who was even more ill and more uh, elderly and uh, did not last very long. And then, of course, we, we see uh, this need to put forward a new kind of leader. Uh, the Politburo decides to put this guy that's two years younger than I am now in charge of everything, which is who is uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. And he... Um, he begins to attack these problems in the, in the way that he best uh, thinks is the uh, route to go. So let's talk about what Gorbachev actually did in terms of policy and the way that I want to frame this because we have limited time. So the way that I want to frame this is if you could explain for our listeners and viewers, if you could explain what was Glasnost, how successful was it, what was the impetus for it, and contrast that with what was perestroika, what was the impetus for that, and how did that play out, and the and maybe the interplay between the two. And let me just explain very quickly before I let you talk on that why I'm asking this question because there are there is serious debate even among leftists and Marxists who are critical of Gorbachev. There is serious debate on the question of Glasnost versus perestroika, and many who would argue, and I would as well, that. Glasnost was extremely positive and Perestroika extremely negative. And so let's talk through what these two things were, how they interacted with each other, and ultimately what conclusions we should draw from those results. Okay. So uh, just on the most rudimentary level, I mean, Glasnost was an opening of society, right? So uh, introducing uh, democracy and uh, removing 
uh, this sense of uh, of uh, fear, and and the the idea that um, uh, conformity uh, was the the only way to get by was to you know keep your head down, keep your nose down, and uh, not get into any trouble with with, with the authorities. Uh, well, from Gorbachev's perspective, uh, this was an yeah well. Let's use Reagan-esque terms. This was an evil in and of itself. Uh, but, but more than that, one could not have socialism. One could not have socialism in the context of a society that did not have openness. And so uh, we see that Gorbachev invites uh, this, uh, this openness. And as you know, there was this great uh, flourishing of, uh, of ideas and of, uh, of conversations regarding how the country should be managed. And, uh, you know, one could make a case, I would even make the case, that the Soviet Union in, say, the year 1990, you know, was the most democratic uh, country in the world. You know, very, very briefly. You know, I mean, you, I mean given the range of debates that were taking place. Now, it coexisted, of course, with a, a still really existing oppressive state apparatus, but one which was being, you know, marginalized, a security apparatus. Uh, but in terms of liveliness of discussion uh, regarding uh, social, political, economic, cultural battles, I mean, it was, it was unparalleled. Uh, just to, you know, reference the uh, experience of a of a mutual friend of ours, Boris Kogorlitsky, who you did a fine interview with uh, a week ago. Uh, Boris was elected to the city council of Moscow in 1990. This is no small thing. I mean, you know, Moscow is a country in and of itself. You know, it's, it's huge, now, both in terms of its population and the resources that it commands. Uh, you know, Boris ran that election campaign, which he won, for 100 US dollars. That was how much he spent on that campaign. Today, if you wanted to get a seat on the city Duma in Moscow, eh, you know, you, you, you either have to be in the favor of someone extremely powerful, uh, or you, know, you might need to uh, spend a few million bucks in order to get that seat, because it's a sinecure that you could use for uh, extracting uh, resources and wealth. And just as and just to give that and just to give that contrast, Boris ran for Moscow City Council again a year and a half ago and was arrested for his for his yeah. efforts. So to yeah. give the illustration of the last thirty two years, Boris ran in nineteen ninety unobstructed. Boris ran in twenty twenty one and was arrested. Right, and you know, and it wasn't the first time, of course. The the and I will get to your point, of, of course, about Perestroika shortly. But uh, in nineteen ninety three, of course when uh, there was this reaction against uh, the, the privatizations that were occurring uh, and the shock uh, uh, therapy that was being applied to Russia under the rule of Boris Yeltsin, uh, you know, Boris was at the Russian White House, at the Russian parliament. He was part of that group of elected officials that uh, were uh, looking to uh, slow these kinds of changes down and just to uh, you know, re-examine the entire uh, model of privatizations and shock therapy generally. And I, you know, there's one great example that uh, Boris used at the time in the early 1990s to illustrate uh, how the privatizations that were occurring at, at, were just you know, nothing short of uh, theft. There was a, a hotel in, in Moscow that was being uh, privatized. And I can't remember what the price was that they were you know, selling it to this uh, uh, individual for. Um, but to illustrate the point uh, of just how much of a ripoff it was, uh, Boris and his uh, colleagues had just one item in that hotel uh, appraised, uh, and that was its chandelier. And, and it, politically, it was very smart. It was a, a great way to illustrate you know, the degree to which this ripoff was. What he pointed to was that the price that the chandelier alone in this hotel was valued at was more than the selling price. <laughs> Of the entire hotel, you know. So, you know, this is is a nice illustration of this kind of wide and, scale. And just to be clear, I believe that was the Oktyabrskaya Hotel, which was the hotel that all dignitaries, visiting dignitaries, Soviet higher ups, etc., would always stay at. So it's not only 
value in terms of dollars or rubles. It's also had this extraordinary value of prestige that was just being sold off and stripped for parts. And in a sense, a microcosm of the entire country, really. Oh, you know, absolutely. You know, I remember, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, for instance, in, in places like Riga in the 1990s, I mean, you could see a bunch of lights in cemeteries. You know, what are these? It's moving lights. Well, they're flashlights. And, uh, you know, what are people doing? Well, they're stripping off the bronze uh, plaques from headstones. You know, they're just, it, you know, this, any, anything that could be uh, taken of value was being stripped off. And so the, what was called the colored metals trade in the 1990s was huge. They were just stripping all of the copper, the brass, the bronze, uh, the aluminum, you know, whatever they could out. But now regarding, and, and back to the point of perestroika. So, of course, that is an opening of the economy. Uh, and uh, and um, of the, the, the power structure uh, somewhat. So what Gorbachev uh, does here is, one, again, assumes with Glasnost that you have this opening of society, this creates a more dynamic, open culture. Combine that uh, with introducing what he had hoped would be, uh, uh, on this other side of the ledger, an equal dynamism in the economy by... Um, liberating uh, uh, company directors to uh, produce uh, goods and services off of the uh, GOSS plan directed uh, um, uh, uh, plan for, you know, that enterprise for the entire economy. And uh, uh, that this would, you know, um, lead to uh, fewer uh, supply shortages, newer products and services that people wanted, etc. Let me just give you one kind of simple example of how uh, this worked uh, when it actually worked as intended, which was not very often. So in Latvia, for instance, uh, and this was how it was supposed to work. So you had a kolhos, you know, a, a collective farm. And some of these were you know, huge enterprises, these collective farms. And so Gorbachev uh, has his directive on enterprises, you know, which says, okay, guys, uh, if you want to produce something else, uh, the, you know, if you've met your target plans and you want to produce something else, go ahead, you do that, keep the profits. So one of the things that this one kolhos in a little place called Adagi in Latvia uh, starts to produce are potato chips. You know, not just big truckloads of potatoes, but they actually begin to process them into a higher value-added product, potato chips. And they make a ton of money. And the next thing you know, they're all driving around in you know, new uh, Toyota SUVs. <laughs> and and uh, to this day, um, this um, uh, potato chip company is the biggest one in Latvia. There's another Kohl's that starts making beer. I mean, so that's how it's supposed to work. Now, how it also worked in the most dysfunctional uh, ways was it opened the uh, economy to widespread, wide-scale theft. So if you, if you were a more corrupt-minded uh, director of an enterprise, well, what could you do? Well, you could start, say, an import-export business on paper. And, uh, okay, well, you know, maybe that could be a good thing. Uh, and so you then started to work with uh, the KGB. Why is that? Well, you were going to need some help in terms of navigating things like international uh, banking systems, uh, you know, so that you could figure out how to trade your goods, get payments for them, all the rest. Well, the only people who knew how to do that in the Soviet Union were uh, the Czechists, um, um, you know, because the, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union used to fund things like, you know, revolutions and all the rest around the world, and they needed to know how to shift money around and get it into the pockets of people they wanted to get it to. So uh, the, the, uh, the KGB begins facilitating uh, the creation of these networks, allowing some of these import-export uh, uh, enterprises to uh, uh, come into being. And, you know, what many directors of enterprises quickly learn is that they can use this to say, let's say their enterprise has allocated a certain amount of oil for whatever it is that they're uh, producing. Well, they can take that oil and, you know, if they're getting it for next to nothing. They can sell it on global markets uh, at the global world price and just capture that entire uh, 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 arbitrage between the state price and the world price, pocket that uh, cash, 
deposit it in an account in uh, in London, and no one will 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 know about it. Now, uh, the other thing they can do is they can start creating their own commercial banks, uh, and the commercial banks can actually create their own money. It's not a nice thing to be able to do. And then the state bank would have to would have to cover any losses. They would have to cover uh, this uh, this money creation of these of these commercial enterprises that were being created. Now, uh, of course, this creates a a a, a, a class of um, call them oligarchs, if you like, uh, but uh, people who are involved in the shadow economy. Let me give you. If I can test your patience here, one example of this in Latvia. So Latvia, because of its location on the Baltic Sea, you know, it's facing westward. It is a uh, uh, just a you know a 10, 12 hour ferry ride from Stockholm, uh, even uh, less so to Helsinki, and uh, you know by plane less than an hour. Uh, it is. Uh, um, one of the chief transshipment points for Soviet raw materials uh, to points west. So the Soviet uh, uh, export uh, trade in oil, for instance, even the legitimate one, the chief port for that is in a, a place called Ventspils, which is another Baltic Latvian uh, port. Now, with um, all of these new enterprises that are emerging as a consequence of Gorbachev's reform all over the dozen time zones of the Soviet Union, uh, you create also an opportunity to make offshore uh, banks in the Soviet Union itself and the post-Soviet republics themselves. It's no mistake that in 1990, the first legal in the Soviet Union currency exchange gets established in Riga uh, by a couple of uh, enterprising Komsomol uh, uh, members. These are you know, young members of the Communist Party. They're all well-connected because they uh, uh, have national this national network. And uh, uh, there are these two guys, uh, Kargan and uh, Krasnogis, and they begin uh, shuttling rubles, Soviet rubles between Riga and St. Petersburg and Moscow by train. And then just, there are small little differences in the value of that currency between these three locations on the black market. And they're doing this by duffel bag and, and, and train. But by 1990, they create a legal currency exchange. And then money from all of the entire Soviet Union starts coming to them as these enterprise directors and cooperative directors start converting their Soviet rubles into hard Western currencies, British sterling and US dollars. It's it's a it's an incredible transformation that is underway, and they end up creating the largest uh, in the 1990s and up until the 2008 crisis bank in Latvia. It was called Podex, and they uh, both you know used to advertise you know right on their sign in the early 1990s. Uh, uh, we take all currencies. We ask no questions. <laughs> and another sign that they had from the early 1990s was, uh, choose us, we're closer than Switzerland. <laughs> I mean, they were very open about what it is they were doing. But at any rate, this opened up the entire former space of the uh, Soviet Union to these uh, shady characters that were selling off the country's natural wealth, uh, pocketing the cash, and then using offshore banks in places like Riga to then uh, uh, redirect that money to places like London and New York for safekeeping. Now, where it has relevance for the, say, post-2008 period is that these Czechist figures, the uh, Silveki, who we are, are always hearing about, the, the KGB, the people who really helped to create these new rich guys uh, begin to get resentful of the fact that they were left out of the deal. And so Putin begins to bring them back into the deal and they begin targeting, well, even before 2008, when you know we had Kordakovsky being arrested and, and putting into jail, they begin to make their move against these 1990s oligarchs and they begin to replace them.
Yes. And, and in fact, just to finish up that point, can you explain, just because people probably do encounter this from time to time, can you explain the scheme whereby major state industries were sold off through so-called shares? Can you yeah. explain how that worked? Because that was one of the main mechanisms that created the oligarchs that we talk about now, who have, of course, as you just mentioned, subsequently either fallen in line with Putin or as in the case of Khodorkovsky, fled. Right. Uh, yeah, so this is the infamous loans for shares scheme. The infamous loans for shares scheme. So how it was decided, now this is post-Gorbachev, how it was decided during the, Yel the early part of the Yeltsin uh, rule uh, to uh, redesign the uh, uh, Soviet economy was to put these massive... Uh, state enterprises in the hands of a, a you know a new uh, ruling economic elite, and so what they did was they held auctions. I mean, this is how privatizations are supposed to work in terms of textbook you know uh, explanations of how they're supposed to work. You're supposed to have an auction. You're supposed to get the best price uh, that you uh, you can for the asset, and then uh, you become the owner of that asset. Well, you know, there, there's no reason that the state could not have just kept these assets. And, you know, it, it did with a few, such as Gazprom. Uh, but the, um, the process was entirely rigged. I mean, all you had to do in the context of an environment that was in the early 1990s, capital starved, is to provide, uh, um, now I'm referring to the, uh, the banks, uh, you had to just direct loans to the figures that you wanted to be able to often figures connected to yourself to buy those uh, assets for you know pennies on the dollar uh and 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 uh, give them just enough money to do that so it was an entirely corrupt process uh, that um, transferred this vast store of national wealth over to just a, a few people in this loans for shares uh, scheme so um uh, you combine that with the uh, destruction of the uh, of the Soviet ruble, again designed to wipe out the savings of everyone, um, and then of course you also had privatization vouchers. I mean, rather uh, you know, um, these vouchers that were supposed to be able to uh, enable uh, everyday citizens to be able to invest in the economy. Well, I mean, come on, what are you going to do with these things? So if you're an average person and you have some of these vouchers, uh, uh, you know, you just sell them for a bottle of vodka or whatever to somebody who then scoops them all up and then they are used to you know help purchase major uh, assets as well uh, so it, it it was just a uh, a corrupt transfer of the um the the entire national public wealth uh represented by state enterprises to a handful of, uh, of oligarchs and uh, just to just to finish up that point before we return to this issue of Gorbachev and the final years of his uh, tenure and the well the final years of the Soviet Union, um, I want to mention also the 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 role that um, well how do I want to say this the ways in which the transfer of wealth from what had been the Soviet state into the hands of these this now this new class the ways in which that then creates the modern Russia that we have today, because that is an important point. It's not just that people got rich. It's that an entire political and economic and even social structure is erected on top of all of these corrupt dealings and practices that were going on in a relatively short period of time. So I guess, can you finish up the point by just helping us to understand how the current system in Russia that we see today is really built on this foundation? Oh yeah, uh, you know it's it's as you've said, it's an oligarchic uh, model, and it's um, one in in which uh, you know th these uh, state enterprises uh, that became uh, public uh, property uh, became the uh, the true centers of uh, of power in 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 the country, and then of course over time Putin uh, takes this system, um, and he does not dismantle it. I mean, he, he um, makes it, uh, I, I guess, more stable uh, to a certain extent. So in other words, the privatizations of the 1990s were, were kind of wild. And, uh, you know, there were 
lots of um, still competing figures that were taking each other out in the literal sense of the term. And, uh, uh, you know, he more or less uh, institutionalizes it and, uh, you know, brings the more independent-minded um, members of the, uh, uh, of the oligarchy to heel uh, and restores uh, the power of the uh, state security services and uh, really, you know, makes them uh, a class of people that, that share in um, uh, this, this great wealth. You know, to refer to a, a great uh, a old book that was published in 1967, by the late great economist uh, John Kenneth uh, Galbraith, the uh, New Industrial State, he uh, referenced uh, this term, which he called the technocracy, the technocracy. And uh, what Galbraith, uh, for you know, some of your younger viewers, I mean, Galbraith was this giant in the field of economics in the middle of the uh, 20th century. Uh, he was at Harvard all the way up until the end, uh, he, you know, he was about 101 or something when he passed, uh, originally a Canadian farmer and uh, always did economics from the perspective of uh, what he thought was the public interest. But at any rate, quite unlike perhaps what you might see today, he, um, he asserted that the, that society is comprised of this class of managers you know, they're the ones who are really uh, running things, and that um, you you uh, you could not let uh, if you wanted social cohesion and stability, you could not let certain sectors of the technocracy uh, be marginalized or pushed to the side. So, in other words, if you're going to have a class of oligarchs, uh, you could not have other members of the managerial class all living like paupers. They just wouldn't. They just wouldn't tolerate it. So, in a sense, what what Putin does is he starts bringing other select sectors of that managerial class into uh, um, this uh, scheme to uh, share in the uh, in the wealth uh, that that Russia uh, still uh, produces. And I'm referring, of course, to the security services. So, yes, exactly. You know, they're going to be they're going to be made rich. Many of them. In a se- yeah, I mean that's the point I was just going to say is that in a sense, Putin is the bridge. He's the bridge oh, yeah. between the intelligence services, the KGB apparatchiks, uh, that whole that whole state security class, and the oligarch class, and he basically is, in a sense, kind of the bridge between those two worlds. And in in just as you mentioned, you know, the idea of his bringing stability, which is actually what the most of the myth of Putin is based on, the idea that he kind of stabilized this Wild West of the 1990s and sort of returned Russia to a kind of safe, whatever, uh, 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 you know, political and economic space. Um, that is built on this idea of sort of uh, uh, marrying these contradictory, contradictory forces into what they now call the Sistema, right, which is the Russian system whereby Putin stands at the center juggling all these competing forces and represents kind of, I don't know, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the brain of it or whatever. Right. And, and of course, uh, that was quite welcomed at first by many people, of course, given the trauma of the 1990s. But what uh, Putin either never could figure out or did not want to figure out because of the implications of that uh, was to how to create some greater degree of dynamism. The same challenge that Gorbachev and Andropov observed, how to create some greater... I mean, he wanted he wanted it both ways. He wanted to preserve this system that he created of institutionalized corruption. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, he wanted to introduce some degree of dynamism in the economy, understanding that without that, I mean, ultimately you, 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 you perish. And, uh, you know, that's something that the last decade has revealed is that he just was unable to, to resolve or to square that, um, set of contradictions. Uh, so it was a kind of a, you know, you know, we can re- refer to this, I think as you know, the Putin neoliberal model, Right. I mean, so and we see that in terms of, you know, the, the central bank and how they you know, were always advocates of uh, more kind of neoliberal uh, policies, which, you know, Putin, I think, was more or less inclined to support and did. Uh, but none of this uh, generated the uh, uh, 
um, unleashing of economic potential, which uh, they thought that maybe it could. Uh, you know, we saw this idea that, you know, Russia was going to create its own MIT and there was actually even a formal relationship between them. And, you know, that didn't, I mean, there were all of these efforts that, that just did not, not pay off in part because of, um, you know, insufficient investment. Uh, but, but, you know, other, other factors as well. If I could just return to just one, one quick point though, before we, I know our time is short. Uh, I, 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 I kind of argue in the article that by the time Gorbachev finds himself at the helm of the uh, Soviet Union, that it would have been damn near impossible to reform it. Uh, and so we, we, we can't lay the blame at his feet. Now, I would argue that if you did want that you know, one in a million lottery chance of actually reforming it, that he undertook the wrong set of policies to achieve that and result and in the wrong order. Uh, but, but nonetheless, uh, it, it was already too far gone and it, it, it just did not have the same, uh, set of advantages that China had. So there's often, you know, this tendency to compare China with the Soviet Union and these are just completely apples and oranges. They cannot be, uh, compared, uh, you know, while Deng Xiaoping, um, certainly disagreed with Gorbachev, especially with regards to Glasnost, uh, as the way to reform uh, this other Stalinist, Maoist uh, economy in China. They just had an entirely different set of conditions. One, the United States was blowing wind into their sails. Uh, they wanted China as a hedge against the still existing Soviet Union. The United States was using China in its massive rural reserve army of cheap labor to uh, keep profit levels up in the United States and to keep wages down in the United States by exporting uh, or subcontract subcontracting out production to uh, China. Uh, you know, so it, 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 it was just an entirely different situation. I mean, the Soviet Union had in the 1980s wages compared to China that were really high, actually. And it was already a, a nearly fully urbanized society. So there was no great reserve army of cheap labor to draw upon. And uh, uh, you, you just could not do what, uh, what China successfully did in the way that they did it. All right. I want to shift gears a little bit in the time that we have remaining, Jeff. And just uh, first of all, I want to shift back to Gorbachev and to understanding. Well, you just made an interesting point in your in your previous comment that I 100 percent agree with that. In some senses, Gorbachev really gets treated unfairly by history because of the nature of when he rises to his position, the, as you already say, sort of the entrenched inefficiencies and breakdowns and, you know, all of the corruption and all of the things that were already present there. And on top of that, he's also saddled with a disastrous war in Afghanistan that he did not launch himself. And also the, of course, the rising class of people that we were just talking about. So, I want to have a retrospective uh, look at Gorbachev, keeping in mind all of these forces that were so much bigger than him. And it's not that I'm soft on Gorbachev, although I guess maybe I am as compared to the people who demonize him endlessly, right? But I do think that these this was so much bigger than him, and he was, in some senses, maybe not powerless, but almost powerless against these forces. Yeah, it was way bigger than him. I mean, if he had... Um, a fault, you know, it might be that he, you know, it might be vanity a little bit, uh, you know, and, and uh, I, I think you're right. We, we do judge him too uh, harshly. I think probably the last cha possible chance of reforming the Soviet Union would have been uh, when and drop off took power. Uh, and if he would have been able to, to, to last, maybe, maybe, maybe even then it was too late. But that was really the last chance. But just as you say, so you have this crisis in the in Afghanistan, which you know, as we know, is in part engineered by the United States. Uh, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor is a big Lubrzynski, Polish nationalist, and you know, he says flat out in an interview in 1998 uh, in La Figaro that uh, you know he wanted to give the Soviets their own Vietnam. He wanted to take them down a peg there. And of course, you know, Gorbachev was not interested in continuing to fight this war. He had to figure out a way to extricate himself from it. And then, of course, you know, the United States as well had other cards to play. 
One was its alliance uh, with the, uh, the Saudis. And so it gets the, the Saudis to open up the oil spigot and take the price of oil way down, at one point, all the way down to $10 a barrel. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the United States was able to uh, uh, impose some hardships uh, on the Soviet Union. But, you know, fair enough. I mean, that's what the Soviets <laughs> would do with the United States when they could as well. I mean, that, that's what the Cold War was about, unfortunately. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so uh, immense challenges and, you know, yes, yes, Gorbachev did not, uh, use the limited bargaining power that he had with the West early enough. I mean, could he have gotten, um, much more aid from them if he would have let the uh, Warsaw Pact dissolve earlier? Sure. Uh, but you know, what would he have done with that aid? What would have happened to it? Uh, by the time he finally did get some aid, uh, for pulling out of the, German Democratic Republic, uh, that money just seems to have disappeared, and and uh, um, you know, and then in, at the at the very very end of the Soviet Union, they just couldn't even feed themselves. I mean, so it, it was a disaster. And I and again, I, I, agreeing with you, I just don't know if he could have turned it around. Yeah, and and you know, on top of that, one of the interesting things about Gorbachev, and and you you make this point in the article several times, is that he was a true believer. You know, oh, yeah. he, he believed yeah. in communism and socialism. He believed right. in Lenin and Lenin's ideas. He believed in these things. And in a in a sense, that almost made him out of step with his own generation of leaders, because many of the people who had risen to high, high positions, especially people like Putin, are notoriously anti-ideological and are not interested in all of the academics of socialism and Marxism oh, yeah, right. as, and as all of know, that other I mean, stuff, you know? You know? Right. So I mean, Putin hates the Bolsheviks, right? And, and Brezhnev, you know, was once uh, um, asked to, in one of his speeches, you know, quote some Lenin and, you know, he just reportedly kind of uh, haughtily turned to one of his aides and said, come on, nobody believes I read this stuff. <laughs> uh, so, and the KGB was, you know, the Soviet Union did kind of create an upper middle class, uh, mostly Czechs. Now, Putin, of course, is not one of those guys. He comes out of, you know, the school of hard knocks in, in uh, St. Petersburg. But a lot of the Czechs were really you know, erudite, um, uh, um, uh, you know, elites that you know, they didn't hold any regard or love for this idea of a workers' revolution. They thought that the Soviet leadership was there through uh, an ideological affirmative action, that they were all idiots and that uh, uh, they should be replaced with someone, meaning me, them. <laughs> you know? they, they thought they should be running the show. So Gorbachev, in the last in, in in the last little bit of his life, of course, um, was in an awkward position because while he undoubtedly had personal views on everything that was going on in Russia, he didn't express them openly for the most part, with maybe a few exceptions. And so, thinking about the fact that Gorbachev dies here in 2022, the year that Putin launches this historically disastrous war on Ukraine. I'm wondering, what do we think Gorbachev might have thought about all of this? And how do you think Gorbachev would have looked upon all of this happening? Because as you say, he was raised by Ukrainian grandparents. He he grew up in, you know, in an area of Russia that is almost Ukraine. I mean, you know what I mean? To the point where your neighbors and your friends and everybody probably have friends and neighbors and relatives and so forth in Ukraine. So very connected to it. And so I guess my question is, on the one hand, what do you think he thought of this? But on the other hand, what does it tell us about where Russia has come to, the place that it has come to after all of these decades? Well, you know, first, of course, I, I, you know, the war is just as you say, it is a, a disaster. Uh, uh, we don't know how it'll play out yet. Uh, on one level, it doesn't matter. I mean, what has already happened has been such a, an, an immense human tragedy. Uh, and every day that it continues, it uh, delivers more of the same in terms of uh, uh, misery. Uh, it's a complicated question. Uh, on one level, uh, Gorbachev was of the view that Crimea was Russian. Uh, he thought that the Donbass was Russian. And at the same time, I, I, I think he would not have countenanced an invasion like this at all. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the question is such a messy one regarding Ukraine. And, and uh, I'll make no friends talking about it, of course. But uh, when the Soviet Union was dissolving, 
you know, it, it wasn't done in an entirely orderly fashion, and these things never are. I mean, what's remarkable about it was just how little bloodshed there was uh, with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. But, uh, you know, there, there were uh, some negotiations that were occurring between the now Russian Republic and uh, uh, the uh, Soviet Ukrainian uh, Republic, uh, as, especially as Yeltsin had asserted his power over who gets what. And and uh, the Russian leadership was, you know, mostly of the view that, you know, oh, come on, guys, don't be serious. Don't, you know, don't think you're going to have the Donbass in Ukraine here. And of course, I didn't rather Crimea. And the Ukrainians were of the view that, uh, no, that, you know, these were areas that were uh, historically um, peopled, populated by uh, Ukrainian speakers, at least, uh, with maybe you know, the exception of Crimea. Uh, but even in the Donbass, I mean, the Donbass, I mean, of course, as it industrializes with French capital in the late 19th century, then all of a sudden, of course, you have all these uh, ethnic Russian speakers that move into the area. Uh, but but in the rural areas, you know, uh, still Ukrainian speaking. Uh, but of course, you know, then we have this um, uh, Vichy-like uh, Ukrainian regime, which is, is created by the Germans after World War One, And of course, that includes Crimea and the Donbass. And it's even a little bit bigger in terms of, you know, territories to the east. So it's not surprising that the Ukrainians want that. But if I could make just one uh, other point, um, there's also the issue of uh, populism here, and uh, you know it's it's terrible how the term is always used pejoratively. I'm going to do that myself uh, here right now. Um, as the Soviet Union was falling apart, and as Gorbachev was making his last gasp attempts at keeping it together as kind of an economic union. Um, you know, what Yeltsin was able to do was to go to the Ukraine and say, hey, you know, you want your freedom and your liberty and uh, the same thing uh, in Russia. How was he able to do that? He went to workers. And, and the argument that both Ukrainian and Russian uh, nationalists made with their working class was to say in Ukraine, hey, imagine how rich we would be if we just got rid of these uh, Russians. We've got this industrial uh, area in the Donbass, and we've got this black earth belt that is agriculturally the most productive in the world. Imagine if we could just untether ourselves from this Soviet Union thing. We'll be massively rich. And then the Russians, of course. Uh, and Yeltsin really believed this stuff. Imagine how rich we're going to be once we, we cut ourselves off from all these other republics who we're supporting out of our, our budget. You know, we, uh, we have, uh, with all of them, with the exception of one in Central Asia, a, a massive, uh, uh, um, um, you know, imbalance in which we're sending them way more money than we're getting back from them. So there was a simple idea that you just untether and, and, and then you're, you're fine. Uh, but I, I think, I think, getting back to your important question, Gorbachev would have been horrified by uh, the, this war. At the same time, you know, he was he, he as um, the twenty first century unfolded, he was also very unhappy with the United States. And how he thought that uh, the, the United States increasingly took advantage of Russia. Well, and that's where Gorbachev's naivete is unforgivable, right? That the 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 part of Gorbachev, or at least for me, that's truly unforgivable, I think, is in his lack of recognition of the nature of Western imperialism. I don't think he fully grasped what the United States was as an imperial entity. He understood the United States in a Cold War context. Mm -hmm. He understood them as a rival superpower, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think he understood what imperialism would be and would become as this, as its rival unraveled. And I think well, this that- This is where, you're absolutely right. And this is where his vanity got in the way uh, because, you know, they flattered him endlessly, the Americans and the Germans. And, uh, you know, he, he actually had an interesting example. I mean, I, you know, I'm, appalled by everything Ronald Reagan represented. But the one thing, the one damn thing that Reagan did right was to uh, ignore his national intelligence and defense establishment and proceed with these negotiations with Gorbachev. They were all thoroughly against it. People like the Secretary of Defense, Cap Weinberger, was storming around, having fits, threatening to uh, uh, resign. They were all saying that, look, the Soviets are just trying to lull you into this false sense of security. They're going to get you to uh, denuclearize, and then they're going to attack you. Uh, I, think, um, I think from the perspective of the time, Gorbachev was taken in by what he thought was the possibility of agency actually existing. Here is this U.S. president that is actually operating against his entire 
national defense and uh, intelligence apparatus and taking the country in a direction that, um, in principle, it, it should not be able to be taken. Uh, if you just had a purely kind of structuralist view of, you know, the, the way countries uh, operate. So, um, yeah, but yeah, you're right. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, he, 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 he just, he got blinded by, by the flattery and, uh, and when he had nothing left to bargain with in terms of chips, uh, yeah, then it was like, oh, Gorby, wonderful guy. Boy, I wish we could help you out, but we can't, <laughs> you know. Well, and, and that ultimately, I think, is part of the complex legacy that he leaves behind, right? Because on the on the one hand, it's it's like, you know, he made good faith efforts, right? He really made good faith attempts to reform the system within the Soviet Union to basically try to end the Cold War or at the very least sort of wind it down from what it had been, uh, whether it's uh, nuclear treaties or anti-ballistic uh, missile treaties or whatever. I mean, these things were extremely important. And Gorbachev does get credit for those things. And at the same time, it's very interesting that he just seems to have not understood imperialism in this sense, that imperialism is a system and that it doesn't care what you do or what deal you make with the person who may or may not be at the head at a given moment, that imperialism rolls on. And so I, I guess to me, that's where that's where this whole argument about, well, Putin launched the war because NATO expanded eastward is totally ludicrous, right? The idea that NATO expanded eastward, yeah, that's what empires do. They are imperialist and that's how they operate. So again, this, the, you know, coming back to Ukraine now, Putin doesn't get to justify a genocidal war of this kind that where he seeks to erase Ukraine, which, by the way, he launched this war with a stridently anti-Lenin, anti-communist, anti-Bolshevik oh, speech. I, I, I remember well. Yeah. The most anti-communist speech I think I've ever heard. Um, right. And and in a sense, it's predicated on this idea that, well, NATO's expansion forced us into this. But yet, if you look at the actual history of 30 years, of the last 30 years, maybe you could say some naivete on the part of the Soviets. But beyond that, imperialism's doing what imperialism does. Yeah. And, and of course, I mean, we know it's, I mean, there's that imperialism. And of course, there's the desire of uh, you know, all of these newly independent countries uh, on the on the, uh, the border of uh, Russia to you know, have security. Uh, so, I mean, that stuff can't be just entirely dismissed. I mean, you know, there are too many people that I know that had their relatives, you know, sent off in uh, cattle cars in the, you know, in the middle of the winter to Siberia, just dropped off and, you know, told them, go fend for yourself. So, you know, people remember that kind of stuff. And so they, you know, they, they not, not that this justifies NATO expansion in the way that it has expanded and in, 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 in what NATO is, you know, because it's essentially the arm of the United States, well, don't know that uh but uh, yeah nonetheless these are real issues they're complex and uh, they need to they need to to be understood and and i would agree with you uh, um you know again knowing that russia was in, just endlessly antagonized by the americans and uh, uh you know but nonetheless that does not justify this war well, Jeff, I uh, was so engaged by our conversation that I forgot to take a break in the middle of it. So I guess people are going to listen to uh, unadulterated uh, 70 minutes of us talking. But final question, Jeff, for you. A stock of a night shock work. Uh. <laughs> so final question, Jeff. What, tell us about Gorbachev's legacy as you see it. Um, I, we already talked about that a little bit, but as as both a political economist, but something of a historian yourself, how do we write the or the the, the hagiography, you know, of Gorbachev? How do we tell the story of Gorbachev and capture some of the nuances of the historical moment in which he was prominent? Yeah, another great question. That he was, as you say, a, a well intentioned uh, leader. Uh, that he was thoughtful, uh, he was smart, uh, he was engaged. Uh, because of his vanity, um, he had significant blind spots, uh, and he presided over a, a system that uh, unraveled uh, at the ultimate cost of millions prematurely dying, millions uh, um, being consigned to uh, horrific levels of, uh, of poverty, 
uh, all unintended on his part, and um, much of which um, would have been at best difficult uh, to have uh, to have uh, uh, changed, uh, given the his departure and a replacement by the figure of Boris Yeltsin and the uh, interests of uh, this new corrupt Russian elite and of uh, international capital that worked together to uh, essentially pillage Russia. So, Jeff, the article talks about how he became the most hated man or the most reviled man in Russia. And in thinking about that, he was kind of hated by everybody, wasn't he? Because he was hated by those who have crowded around Putin, who see Gorbachev as this weak uh, you know, leader who allowed for all of this to happen and victimized by the West. He's also simultaneously hated by those with this extreme Soviet nostalgia for whom they, you know, he represents the sort of polar opposite of that. And so in a sense, he kind of is in no man's land historically, right? He's hated on both sides, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And this is, I, I, you know, sometimes I find this even in, in, in just personal interactions. I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, trying to make as many people happy as possible will, of course, earn you the most enemies. <laughs> uh, uh, that's for sure. And sometimes it's it's not the way to go, is to just try and make everyone happy. I think it's a good... Uh, um, inclination to have, uh, but you you know you can't always try and act on that. But in terms of his legacy, you know, as I say uh, at the end of my piece, all he was left with was a foundation, one which had marginal influence by the 1990s and by the 21st century was almost entirely neglected. Indeed. Okay, we'll leave it there. Uh, Jeff Summers has been with me. Again, the article we've been talking about, it's really a great piece that we had on Counterpunch a couple of weeks ago, how Mikhail Gorbachev became the most reviled man in Russia. Again, Jeffrey Summers, uh, the book, I want you to all to get a copy of The Contradictions of Austerity, The Socioeconomic Costs of the Neoliberal Baltic Model. Uh, he's a professor of political economy and public policy in the Department of African and Diaspora Studies and senior fellow at the Institute of World Affairs. University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Jeff is a regular counterpuncher, and we always love to talk to him. Hey, Jeff, thanks again for chatting with us. Great being with you, Eric. Keep up the counterpunching. Listeners, viewers, thank you as always, and we will chat again next time.